Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. We're going to read essentially the first half of the chapter, and I'll quickly summarize the second half for us. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. Judges 9, 1 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives. Remember, Abimelech is the son, the illegitimate son of Gideon, that great man that Hebrews speaks of. Abimelech is his illegitimate son through a concubine. So Abimelech... The son of Jerubbabel went to Shechem his mother, to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the rulers of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember, I am your bone and your flesh." And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's our relative. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless fellow and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jerubbabel, the youngest son of Jerub- but Jotham, rather, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. All the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and he called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, Come, you come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You come, reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But if you have risen against my father today and have killed his son, 70 men, on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative, if then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem, 
and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beer and remained there because, Abimelech, because of Abimelech, his brother. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Let's be seated and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a great portion of your Holy Spirit. The great promise, one of the great promises of your word is that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there in, in their midst. You are here with us. So as Jacob Bartlett prayed and led us in confession, we pray that we would humbly sit before you with reverence and with attention to what your word will say, and I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing and honest and true to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the first chapter. We read about Abimelech's treachery, that horrible crime that he commits against his father and against his 70 half-brothers. And in the second half of this chapter, we're not going to read most of it. We may get to a couple small sections later on. We learn that after three years, remember it said that Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. After those three years of nice, fairly peaceful rule where he gets his way, things start to go very badly for the men of Shechem and for this bramble king, Abimelech. Verse 23 of the chapter, the next verse after we left off, said, Then... God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. The people's affections start to become embittered towards this man. And they start to go after another guy by the name of Gael. While Abimelech was away from Shechem, Gael was there, and he starts running his mouth and talking smack toward Abimelech basically saying he's not afraid of Abimelech, and if Abimelech was here, then he would show Abimelech who's the real man in town now. And there's some partying and some celebrating, and foolish words are said against Abimelech. And one of Abimelech's commanders overhears what this guy named Gael is saying, and he sends a message to Abimelech and says, Abimelech, things aren't going well. We're, we're, we're approaching um, an insurrection. Come back in the middle of the night and surprise Gale and these Shechemites who have sort of fallen out of your favor and put an end to it. So Abimelech comes back in the middle of the night and he ends up killing everyone. He ends up going to fight with this guy named Gale and he kills him and he kills the men that are his direct supporters, those that are fighting near this new guy in town's side. But he doesn't stop there. He's not satisfied with that. He goes out and wipes out the town. He wipes out all these people that were living and staying in a tower nearby. And then it says in verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city. He killed everyone who was in it. And then he raised the city and sowed it with salt. Now, what does that mean? Does it, he's salting it like you would your, your meat at the dinner table? Well, what, what it's saying is that he purposely and systematically 
went about destroying and dismantling the city so that it could not be inhabited in the future. It was barren. How many of you have walked in one of our north or south entrances and noticed what a hard time we have keeping the grass alive? Have you noticed that? Okay, yes. Our green thumbs have noticed that. The reason, one of the reasons for that is because every winter, our deacons serve us by spreading salt on the walkways so that we don't trip when we're walking into church. And what happens when you put salt on something that's alive and well, it kills it. So this is essentially what Abimelech has just done to this city. He's decimating this, he's killing the population of the city, and he's just covering it in salt so that nothing will live. It's not coming back. And as if this weren't enough, he then turns and he leaves that city and those men who are on the brink of insurrection. And he starts going to another nearby city to do the same thing. And all the people in that city run to a, a tower, a fortification. And as he approaches that tower, he's going to burn it to the ground with all those people inside it. He's going to burn them alive. And it happens that a woman is at the top of that tower with her millstone. How many of you guys have ever thought, oh no, panic, run, terror, where's my millstone? Let's drag that thing up every flight of steps. I mean, the sovereignty of God here, right? Right? The sovereignty of God. And there's a lady at the top of that tower, and as Abimelech approaches it with his branch and his torch to light that thing on fire, she drops the millstone on his head, and he dies. And the word says, it crushed his skull. And that is the end of Abimelech. Now, it's a lot of talk about this guy. And while Abimelech is the main character of this chapter, I do not believe that he is the main point. I believe that the point of this chapter is the character of the people that desire and are willing to have Abimelech rule over them. And this morning, I want to make the point that ultimately, this chapter is talking about the gravity of ingratitude. I want to point something out. When Jotham... Abimelech's half-brother, who pronounced that, that proclamation from the mountain about the, the bramble, when he heard that the people had made Abimelech king, he ran up to the top of Mount Gerizim, and he stood and he looked down on the Shechemites. And what does he say? This is important. What does he say? Who does he address? Does he stand up there and curse his brother for just slaughtering his other brothers? Does he stand up there and declare that someday he's going to come back and avenge like a Nigel Montoya, right? Kill, you killed my father, prepare to die. Is that what his point is? Is that who he's addressing? Is, he, is his words to Abimelech? Because this is framing in the rest of the narrative. No. We need to notice that though he's just witnessed this massive slaughter, he isn't addressing his brother. He's addressing the men of Shechem. We need to lock in on this point. He says, now therefore, if you've dealt with truth and integrity, it's the opposite of treachery, if you've dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dwelt well with Jerubbabel, my father, and with his house, and if you've dealt with him according to what he deserved, for my father fought for you, rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from you and consume him and let fire come out from him and consume you. That is what Jotham, Abimelech's half-brother, proclaims. The main thrust of chapter 9 is not aimed at the Judases of the world who betray their closest friends for the sake of earthly gain. Though there are 
many lessons to be learned from Abimelech. This chapter is aimed at the people who were not grateful for the deliverance and the Savior that God had given to them in the man Gideon. It's aimed at the people who, in the last verse of chapter 8, if you look back at that, say, it says, they did not show kindness to the household of Gideon in accordance with all that he had done. Here's Gideon, here's all he's done for you, the people of the land. Don't show any regard for him. And it is aimed at us, this chapter, as a reality check on our own ingratitudes. The story of about Abimelech is aimed at getting us to see that this is the corridor that ingratitude takes you down. And it's not a good one. This morning, I do want to speak to you about the gravity of a sin like ingratitude. Have you ever done something or been involved in a situation where suddenly, for the first time, you recognize the gravity of the situation you're in. All throughout life, we'll go through these, these things, both positively and negatively. I've heard many men comment on the moment they first hold their child. They've been a father for nine months, and yet that baby is born, and it's handed to them by the doctor, and something changes in them. There's this gravity that sinks into them like, I'm now this guy or gal's father. I'm responsible. It's a positive thing. It's a beautiful thing. But there's a gravity to it, and it sinks in in just a moment's notice. Or maybe you've done something like I almost did a few years back, and you're climbing something that you think is pretty safe and fairly insignificant, and then you have a close call, and oh, just like that, whoa, it seems much more dangerous, much more weighty. I can remember a mistake I've made. How, how many of us have ever realized the gravity of something we've done after we've gotten backhanded for it? Most of us. I remember in my early days, or a long time ago, leading the youth group, there were some pranks where tires were being taken off cars and put in the pond. And I said that some young guys could take Jordan Arndt's tire and throw it in the pond. Well, we ended up deciding against that, and I told them to tighten it back up, but I got a call later that day from a very, I don't remember if it was Mike Arndt or if he was speaking. I, I just remember thinking that Sharon Arndt was furious, but I think, I think you, Mike, were the one calling me, so that tells us all how angry Sharon was. <laughs> The boys that I had said, told to put his hot tire back on had put it back on and put the lug nuts on but not tightened them. And Jordan's driving down the road and all of a sudden, whoop, 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 his tire almost came off on the side of the road. And I got that call and, oh, 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 my life, I'm going to be fired. Mike Sinel, I'm done. <laughs> They're going to ship me off. <laughs> I had that realization. You've had realizations like that too. Now listen, we need to understand the, gratitude, the gravity of ingratitude. Most of us would read this chapter and the slaughter of Gideon's 70 sons is obviously horrible and dirty and it's the most treacherous and awful thing in this entire chapter and yet it is the ingratitude of the Israelites toward Gideon that lead to that murder. Abimelech wouldn't have had any 
armed to, to kill those men, if the people had cared about Gideon, if they would have been grateful for what he had done, it just would have, he would have had evil motivations. But he wouldn't have been able to put down any roots because the people wouldn't have stood for it. And so we see that ingratitude is actually part of the root problem that leads to these other horrible things. And the reason I want to say to us this morning that there's such a gravity to this sin is that we don't think that there's gravity to the sin. We all say, yeah, it's wrong, but I don't think we get it. I think we, we think there's a lot more dirty sins, a lot worse sins than ingratitude. And so I'm taking this Sunday to mark it all in our minds that ingratitude is a sin against God. Ingratitude is often in that short list in the New Testament of sins which those who will not inherit the kingdom participate in. Right along with every sexual type of perversion, you'll find ingratitude right along with it. While it was the men of Shechem that paid for the murder, and while we're told that all the men of Shechem and Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king under the oak in Shechem, we're told in verse 22 that Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. I've said this now three times, and the reason I've read that verse and I included it in our passages. Not to say that we know that, uh, Gideon, uh, that Abimelech actually was the first king over all the tribes, but, but what we need to understand here is that when it says he ruled over all Israel, he's ruling more than just one city. He's ruling. People have kind of come to embrace him. He ruled over Israel for three years, and this was a travesty. The other tribes should have come together. They should have brought justice to the situation. They should have put Abimelech and all of those that helped him to death. But instead, they acknowledge his rule seemingly without protest. Had they been grateful to Gideon in chapter 9, it would have been a very different story. If the Shechemites had been grateful to Gideon, they wouldn't have stood for Abimelech's scheme. And if the rest of Israel had been grateful to Gideon, then they wouldn't have stood for what happened and they wouldn't have allowed Abimelech to, to grab and seize power and be king. Notice that ingratitude, that ingratitude rather, is how the author leads into chapter 9. Again, he wrote that Israel did not show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel in accordance with all that he had done for Israel, making the point that ingratitude is, is the main overarching point we want to take away from this chapter the man that they once cared about, they no longer care for. They aren't thankful. They don't show him honor despite what he had done. The author says that. God will say that later in the chapter. Just like those life situations that seem light and get heavy real quick, we need to recognize how terrible ingratitude is. Ingratitude can and does lead to all sorts of horrible things. And this is the lesson that we can't miss from Judges chapter 9. I want to point out just a couple points about the nature of being ungrateful from the passage that I hope will cause us all to recognize its gravity, help us understand why it's so bad, and the reason that you need to oppose this sin with the same tenacity, the same vigor, the same attention that you would impose other sins that look more gnarly, more ugly. You need to gear up against this sin. What were the people in our passage ungrateful for? Gideon. That's clear. But who was Gideon? Who was Gideon? Gideon was the deliverer that God had sent them. As they were ungrateful for the man that God had sent them, 
they were ungrateful towards God. You aren't grateful for your job? Who gave you your job? You aren't grateful for your wife, your house, your car, your life circumstance? Who gave you your house, your wife, your car, your life circumstance? How about your disease? Your suffering? All these things come from the hand of God, and therefore, ingratitude is always against God. And this may seem like a point that you already know, but here's the deal. In our hearts and in our minds, we like to think that our lack of gratitude is only circumstantial, that it's somehow separated from our gratitude toward God himself. This just is not the case. It's a lie. We like to compartmentalize. We complain about this thing or that person, all while being good with God. Because if we aren't grateful to God, we know that that's a bigger deal. But I'm grateful to God. I just really dislike this. I'm ungrateful for that. I make comparisons about this. They're all the earthly things. It's just the stuff that doesn't really matter. I'm thankful to God. I come to church and I sing praise to God. We like to make these distinctions. They're not there. They're not there. We like to think that our parents are stupid and ridiculous and unreasonable. But we wouldn't like to say with our mouths in front of anyone that God is ridiculous or stupid or unreasonable. Yet God is the one who's put your parents there. He's the one who he holds responsible for nurturing you. And your attitude toward your parents is your attitude toward God. When we are ungrateful toward them, you are ungrateful toward God. We stew over the fact that we aren't given this or that at work, and we like to think that there's this hard disconnect between our lack of thankfulness toward our boss or our employer and how we deal with God. But they're always tied. Always, always, always. If you are ungrateful to your parents or to your spouse or to your boss, wherever you or I are ungrateful, we must understand that that's ingratitude, ingratitude toward God. Ingratitude cannot simply be aimed at one person or at one situation because it is at its heart a rejection of God. Listen to this. It's a rejection of God because he is the creator and ruler over everything. It is a rejection of God as the one who gives life, as the one who is the giver of every blessing and everything that we don't perceive as a blessing in the moment. The things that we expect, the things that we don't expect, the things that are pleasant, the things that are painful. God is the one who gives all of these things. Even in prison, may I remind you that the Apostle Paul rejoiced and exhorted the Philippian jail, the, the, those that were in prison with him, to rejoice as well. In Acts 5, the apostles were beaten for speaking the name of Jesus, and yet instead of resenting it, like we so often are tempted to do when we are doing what's right and we get punished for it. What are we told? We're told that they rejoiced being considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. They were grateful that they were counted worthy not just to receive accolades or to get an article written about them or to be highlighted. They were considered worthy to suffer. They were grateful for that. Remember the words of Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, which say, 
Is it not from the mouth of the Lord Most High that both good and bad come? All things come from God. And so when we're ungrateful toward God, ungrateful for our circumstances, we are ungrateful toward God. Believers are to be grateful because we recognize, we can see that whatever we have and, whatever, what, <clears throat> and whoever we are is being shaped and molded and comes from the hand of God. When we aren't grateful, it's never compartmentalized like we try to assure ourselves that it is. We are always pointing a finger back at God. If we're ungrateful, we have a finger pointing at God. We don't like to admit that. We don't like to think about that. We like to make all sorts of blockades between our ungratitude here, earthly, and our satisfaction with God who we worship. We can't. It's a, it's a false distinction. We can't have those two things separated. Any ingratitude is always pointed toward God, period. So that's a big deal. It's a big deal. The second thing that I want to say about the nature of ingratitude is that ingratitude proliferates. It grows like crazy really fast. And it does so naturally. But gratitude is a discipline that has to be practiced. It just doesn't happen. You don't just trip into it. At the beginning of our chapter, I want to point out that there were two groups of people that were ungrateful. The first was the nation of Israel towards Gideon and towards God. The second was the illegitimate son of Gideon, Abimelech. Now, we don't know anything about Abimelech's upbringing other than the fact that his mother was not a wife but a concubine. As such, Abimelech would not receive the same blessings, the same inheritance, maybe the same privileges even, that his brothers would. And we could guess that his resentment towards his other brothers started very young, started very early because of that fact and grew from there. So two groups, resentful and ungrateful, the people of Israel and the son. Abimelech comes to Shechem, and he does what we so often do when we aren't grateful. Look at what he does. Look at what he does. Verse 2. Which is better for you? That 70 men, all sons of Jerubbabel, rule over, or that one man rule over you? He makes comparisons. He goes to the men, and he makes comparisons. It is at this point that both ungrateful parties make an alliance, and the sin and destruction of ingratitude start to snowball and grow. There are various sins in this chapter. I'm not saying that ingratitude is the only one, but the root of these two groups colliding and this destructive force moving forward is ingratitude. We are told that plainly. It isn't surprising that though the people were happy with Abimelech's rule for a time, they actually get sick of him too. They start making more comparisons. We didn't read it, but I summarized it. That guy, Gale, starts saying, oh, look at me. Gideon's done uh, Jerubbabel, Abimelech. <laughs> a lot of characters in this thing. Abimelech's done this, but I could do this for you. So Gal, uh, Gale starts making comparisons just like Abimelech made. And their affections start moving toward him. They start making more comparisons and saying, yeah, we like the looks of this new guy better. Remember, ingratitude grows. It grows. And when we went down to Pigeon Forge a couple weeks ago on vacation, we noticed something I don't ever recall seeing before, and I don't have the, the foggiest idea of how I've never noticed this. 
But there is this vine that has completely just engulfed whole mountainsides of the Smoky Mountains. It is incredibly invasive. It just covers everything. It looks like there's green blankets of leaves, thick green leaves just pouring over and spilling down everything on the mountainside. If it's a rock mountainside, it's covered. If it's a mountainside of pines, which it is in the Smokies, these, these, these things just go down the mountain, and then they just surge up again over top of the trees and come spilling down. It's sort of this incredible and daunting picture all at the same time. It looks cool, but it's also like, oh, man, there's so much of it. Now, this vine is called kudzu, which I looked up, and it was brought here to help with erosion. The problem is, unfortunately, it's so stinking invasive that the, the bad it's doing far outweighs the good that it was brought here to do initially. And it's growing north, so beware. Its growth rate is insane. It grows up to a foot a day. Not all of it, but it can grow up to a foot a day. It's crazy. Ingratitude also proliferates, but its damage is much, 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 much more severe than kudzu, than any invasive vine. Once you start going down the road of ingratitude, it never actually ends. For as good as your life may be, if you don't dig down and you don't sever the root of ingratitude, there will always be circumstances that cause you to be thankless, to continue in griping. If you start going down this ungrateful avenue, you'll never arrive at satisfaction or contentment. And I have gone down that road, and I know that it's true, and you have gone down that road, and you know that you never find satisfaction. You never arrive when you're going down that road. Like the account of Abimelech and the Israelites in chapter 9, it is a miserable and a tragic and a dangerous road to walk. Ingratitude proliferates, but gratitude is something that needs to be practiced, and so I know it's been a long service. I want to just end by talking about gratitude and how we need to work on it and practice it. We started by saying that ingratitude is a big deal. And I know that <clears throat> we have to fight thinking that it's one of those throwaway sins. It's destructive and it's harmful to those around us. And it's ultimately aimed at God and it grows naturally. On the other hand, gratitude is also a big deal. It's wonderful, it's joyous, it builds rather than destroys, and it is also ultimately aimed at God. When we're grateful to each other, we're being grateful to God, but we need to practice it. We don't just naturally trip into being grateful because our hearts, as the scripture says, are naturally geared, they're tuned to be self-focused. That's why it never says you need to learn to love yourself. It just tells us instead to love others as we love ourselves, or more than we love ourselves. Paul never felt the need to elaborate on how to love yourself. It's innate. There's no shame in admitting that we need to practice something that is good and right. In fact, God knew that the people of Israel would benefit from practicing gratitude. And so listen, he not only instructed them to make sacrifices that would atone for their sins, but he told them to give thanksgiving offerings. You ever thought about that? He commanded them to declare his praise. Hundreds of times in the scripture, the declarative com command to praise the Lord is proclaimed. Why do you think it's repeated that often? Well, it's because God knows that we must engage in it. We must practice it or we will naturally go toward ingratitude. 
Going back to what we said earlier, gratitude isn't simply a response that we emit when good things happen. It's not just some positive little reaction that makes us to something that makes us happy. Gratitude is a condition of our hearts. It's a condition of our hearts. And so we need to condition our hearts, don't we? God doesn't just want us to verbally praise him, obviously, while our hearts are not engaged, but he tells us to praise him, praise him, praise him, and we have to trust that by praising him, even when we don't feel like it, and we've all been there, we need to trust that when we do it in obedience and faith that he will change us, that he will change our hearts, and that is what the Scripture says. This is so often the case, not just with singing, but in all of life, when we obey God by faith, despite our feelings, Despite our feelings, God works. He changes us, he refines us, he strengthens us. So here are some practical things that we can do to strengthen gratitude in our lives. And the first thing I want to say is fight comparisons. Fight them, put them down. Often um, comparisons only serve to inflame the ingratitude of our hearts. Be very leery of comparisons. Not every comparison is wrong, but many, many, many should be done without. Many times they lead us into, compar- into ingratitude. Remember that Abimelech went to the leaders with a comparison. That's how he sort of ignited that dissatisfaction and that desire for something more. Okay, next thing. This is huge. Fight entitlement. Fight entitlement. Abimelech, again, felt that he should be entitled to something that he had absolutely no right to. As the son of a concubine, he had less right than the legitimate sons. And if we go back one chapter, we remember the Gideon said, no, I won't be your king. And guess what? No, my boys aren't going to be your king either because who is your king? God is your king. None of them had a right to the throne. And yet it's this illegitimate son that feels entitled to it. Now, we are living in a day where everyone feels entitled. Entitled in terms of what they deserve. Entitled about what they say and who should listen to what they say, entitled about how others treat them. And it all stems from a heart that is not grateful for what we have been given, the things that we already have. If you recognize that God is the one who has supplied you with all things, all things, the things that are pleasant and the things that are not, how can you live being entitled? Instead, be grateful Be grateful for what you have right now. God has given each and every one of us so much more than what we we deserve. The third thing I want to say for the sake of time is grow where you're planted. Think about the metaphor of the trees that we read. It was a noble thing for Gideon to turn down the kingship for himself and for his sons. They wanted to continue and be fruitful and productive right where they were. That's what Jotham says in that story about the trees. They weren't looking for the next best thing. They were approached and said, rain rain over us, and they said, no, I'm not going to stop being fruitful where I am to go and do this for you. Now, we live in a culture where the next thing is all that really matters, and it breeds contempt for the present. We always are wanting more and more and more, we're so barraged by it that we may not even recognize it. It's the whole dopamine thing. Scroll, scroll, more stimulation, more information, what's next? We live and we breathe in this kind of an environment. And so we're susceptible to falling prey to it without knowing it. 
We need to recognize that we are being conditioned to be ungrateful. So many things are trying to play on our heart of ingratitude so that others can make money off of it. It's insane. It's all around us. We need to recognize that we are being conditioned for this. Most of the ads that you see are given to you because of the things that you say and your phone is listening. It's just, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I believe that. It's just crazy. If you're not satisfied with this, if you wish that you could have that, if you could only travel here or do this thing. Now, it's not wrong to have desires, but it is wrong, and listen, it is wrong when those desires cause you not to be grateful to God for where he's planted you. So I encourage you to seek to grow where you are. Stop yearning to be somewhere else and to do something else and have this opportunity. Be grateful for where you were, where he's put you. Okay, discipline your mind to think about other people rather than yourself. We see in Abimelech a man who spent his life thinking about himself. I think the most shocking instance of this, uh, this thinking about himself happens at the end of the chapter. We didn't read it, it's just a couple verses. We're told that when he goes to burn down that tower and that lady drops the stone on his head, he approaches it and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on his head, crushing his skull. Then he quickly called out to the young man, his armor bearer, and said, draw your sword and kill me so that it will not be said of me. A woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through and he died. He died by the hand of his servant. It's insane how much he was thinking about himself. He was standing there. He had to see the lady at the top of the tower drop the stone. And why he didn't move, I don't know. But here it comes. And all he can think about is himself. It's ridiculous. On the threshold of eternity, he is thinking about himself. He is not thinking about his soul. He's not thinking about repentance. He's not crying out for mercy. The man was dying, but his, his self-focus, his pride was alive and strong. All right. It's for good reason, finally, that God worked gratitude into Israel's actions and words. We already said that he demanded that they give thanks offerings. He demanded that they praise him on a very regular basis. It was part of life as an Israelite, and it was practiced in very simple and straightforward ways. And gratitude is a pretty straightforward and simple topic. It needs to be practiced in ways that can be heard and seen and felt by other people. Gratitude cannot be confined to your feelings and not expressed. We have to show it. We have to show it. This means making use of very simple things like please and thank you. I remember sending a text message and asking somebody for something. And they responded not by answering me, but by saying, please and thank you are always free. Make use of them. And I thought, well, he uncovered a stone in the garden and found a little worm of discontentment right there. You know, like a lack of gratitude. A lack of gratitude. It's just simple. Please and thank you are always free. Make use of them. And it's not just please and thank you. It's the heart behind it. Make a discipline of praying thanksgiving to God. We're going through the Lord's Prayer in our evening services. And, and what's so striking is that the, the requests for our daily needs are not at the front. And so often our prayers are just, I need this, I need that. Can you please do this? Can you please do this? Discipline yourself to pray for five minutes and just give thanks. You want to grow in gratitude? Do that. Make that a discipline of your life. 
Show appreciation to others. Do, do you appreciate your spouse? Okay, yeah. Do you verbalize it? Would you expect her to understand it through some sort of telekinetic conduction? Express it. Write notes. You know, I'm grateful to, again, like I can think of specific individuals in this church who write me on a regular occasion and thank me or encourage me. It's so great. You write notes. There's many ways you can do this. It's not complicated. There's so many areas and opportunities that we have to be grateful if we just see them. Just think about coming in here this morning. There, there are those that are serving you by loving your children, caring for them, changing their diapers, teaching them the Bible. There are those that get here early just to make coffee for you. There are those that spend hours during the week preparing to teach you, and not just here, but in truth and life and in your women's Bible study and your men's Bible study. There are like we already talked about the salt. There are deacons who have teams of other men that are here every week during the winter just preparing for you. Opportunities of gratitude are just all over if we have the heart and the eyes to see them and to recognize them. So listen, listen. The point is that there are opportunities to show gratitude all over, all around us all the time. The Christian man, the Christian woman, the Christian teenager, the Christian child is to be grateful. The story of Abimelech serves as a warning to us about where ingratitude will take us. And I started by making the point that ingratitude has gravity. There's gravity to it. But of course, what I want to say in closing is that this is true because there is an immense gravity to gratitude as well. It's just the opposite, the inverse. Gravity is, <laughs> gratitude is important. Gratitude strikes at the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. And for as damaging and destructive and harmful as, gra- as ingratitude is, gratitude is wonderful and encouraging and productive and selfless and Christ-like. And so I call on us to look at chapter 9, to see the story of Abimelech and his wickedness and the people, but not just to see, oh, there's a Hitler, there's a Judas, glad I'm not like them, but to see, ooh, this is where this is where ingratitude goes, and this is the power of gratitude in the Christian life. It's wonderful. Let's commit ourselves to being grateful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would make us grateful. Father, how, how wrong it is, how proud it is to, to complain and to shake our fists at you. Here we sit fully clothed, fully nourished. None of us are wasting away from hunger even. None of us are being oppressed or beaten for speaking the name of Jesus Christ. You've given us so many good things, and you have also given us hard things. We don't deny that or diminish them. And yet, we pray that in the midst of it all, we would, we would shine as a light because we are a grateful people in a world that is ungrateful. That we would be people that are focused on other people and you in a world that is focused on self. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.